0: Thank you very much, Lizzie, and thank you everybody for staying till the bitter end to listen to something that's going to be rather different, uh, I should imagine. Um, Books in the 16th century Ireland seem to suffer in modern scholarship from being neither one thing nor the other. Um, they do not neatly fit into the category of manuscripts following in the insular tradition, but nor are they comfortably su- uh, situated in the sort of wider context um, of the dissemination of texts and the rise in print culture um, of the early modern period. And indeed um, Francois Henri and uh, Genevieve Marsh Miley, um, they describe the period as a chaotic one as far as writing and decoration of manuscripts is concerned, providing mainly for ordinary books, mostly serviceable and unspectacular. And furthermore, they describe any illumination in these manuscripts in the 16th century as already anachronic, as they date from a time when everywhere the manuscript was giving w- given way rather um, to the printed book and that scribes of the period did not usually waste their efforts on such futile embe- embellishments as illuminated initials. Um, and such a view is in keeping with wider discussions of art and material culture in Ireland during the period, which could be described at best um, as mixed, uh, with scholars often adopting apologetic or even disparaging tones. Um, in his discussion of contemporary church architecture, for instance, Roger Stalley states... Um, It is especially difficult to categorise, there is an assumption, that long before the dissolution of the monasteries, the skills of the medieval mason were being lost. Harold Lees spoke of the running down of the masons' powers of design as if the masons themselves were aware that the style within which they worked was somehow in decline, and it is tempting to conclude that by the early years of the 16th century, Gothic no longer existed as a vibrant or original style in Ireland. Instead, what remained was Gothic survival, the superficial trappings of Gothic, with local masons content to repeat old and familiar patterns because they knew no better. Um, And similarly, Bernadette Cunningham and Raymond Gillespie noted that scribes of the period have been depicted primarily as conservators of tradition, preserving and canonising older texts as they described them for their use in their own generation. So, taking our um, queer and grotesque dirty old rag um, as our starting point, let us look at the 16th century book. What did it look like? What was its worth as an object? And was it simply a poor imitation of what had gone before? Um, overall, 23 and 10 is approximately 20 centimetres by 14, with some variant leaves and fragments inset on new leaves. Um, the total book, as we've heard, has been made up to 160 pages in total, split between the 14 parchment folia at the beginning, um, and then the 61 paper leaves, um, which are slightly larger and giving the whole um, a sort of a size akin to that of the modern paperback, um, which obviously you'll see outside. Um, and before lunch, we were treated to Chantal Coble's um, eye crossing, um, but important reconstruction of the original organisation of the gatherings um, and overview of the debate as to the use of different materials, but cogently challenging this rather less than satisfactory arguments that had been proposed previously. Um, And not only has the original ordering of the codex been uh, disrupted, but the text and the support for the book have have suffered damage uh, um, from over time. Um, 41 folios and leaves have holes in them. A further four have slits or slices. A further four are so thin as to be almost transparent in places. The leaves at the end of the book are very fragmentary. Throughout, damaged paper leaves have been insert on a fresh material and strengthened with a gauze in the British Museum in 1920. Um, and the text is frequently freighted or reagents have been used such that the text has been rendered illegible in places, as we heard from Liam yesterday. Um, and in others, inscriptions have been unfaced. Um, in addition to the remounting and repairs occurring in the manuscript, re-inking appears on some of the pages. And an older pair may be found on page 9 where the slit has been stitched, although, as we heard already, this had been replaced by the Academy. Um, the mise en page uh, is reasonably consistent throughout the book, uh, across both parchment and paper li- uh, pages, though discounting obviously the calendar and the fragmentary leaves. and um, The number of lines per page averages at just over 31, with more than 90 pages of the book falling between 30 and 35 lines. Um, On the extremes, then, page 27 only has 10 lines, whereas page 8 on the other end has 41. Um, And it's not surprising, uh, perhaps, given that a single scribe is uh, responsible for such a large proportion um, of the book. Um, The ruling is dry point throughout, with zealous pricking visible on on numerous pages. Um, And the format is consistent with Harley manuscript uh, 5.280 that early 16th century uh, scholars compendium um, that we've heard uh, about several times um, associated with 23 and 10 and the, oh sorry excuse me, um, I've skipped, uh, sorry excuse me, um, uh, that we have heard so much about um, in relation to 23 and 10 and the risk common area. Um, The Harley manuscript is of a similar size, it's 245 centimeters by 17 um, and contains 78 folia. Uh, The script is in a single column, ruled in dry point, um, and has 30 or 40 lines per page. Um, This manuscript is, however, parchment throughout and contains three zoomorphic initials. The dimensions of Ballykillman and the Harley manuscript, while perhaps more suited uh, to the often itinerant nature of scribal activity, do not in and of themselves identify the books as being utilitarian. Um, Unlike the grand lordly books of the 14th and 15th centuries, other 16th century patron manuscripts are of a more modest size. Um, Another closely related manuscript that we've been hearing about, Edgerton 88, um, is only marginally larger at 25.5 centimetres by 17 and 93 folia. Um, and similarly, the Shanikus Birka contains 75 leaves and measures 24 by 15. Like Bellicum in this latter manuscript is also written in a single column. Um, Edgerton 88 and burka, on the other hand, are more lavishly ornamented, the former with marginal drawings of animals, a zoomorphic initial, and initials with penwork decoration, the latter with 14 miniatures, four passion scenes, nine Burke portraits, and a coat of arms. This mention of illumination leads us to an interesting point, um, and brings us back to something touched on earlier. First, while, as Lizzie said, Ballycommon, not the most ornamented book that there is today, um, has some suggestion that perhaps it was intended to be, or at least the option was left open for it to be. Um, Throughout the manuscript, uh, there are 21 blanks left for ornamental initials, um, occasionally such as that as I have here, page 21. They are reasonably large at six lines of normal text in height, Um, and as you can see in this example, some of the blanks have the appropriate initial penned in in the edge or the corner of the available space. A further sixty one initials have also been embellished with penwork decorations such as pelmets um, and as illustrated by Harley fifty two eighty a utilitarian book does not necessarily mean that it is not ornamented, suggesting that the mononic for, uh, or didactic qualities of illumination could be valued tools and Second, if we note uh, if we take note of the zoomorphic initials found in Edgerton and Harley. Um, And then return to the comments raised at the beginning by Henri, Marsh, Michaeli and Staly, we might be inclined to believe that the illumination in the 16th century was simply a continuation or indeed a slavish copying of that of a bygone era. Um, However, that would be to overlook a considerable degree of innovation and adaptation demonstrated by 16th century scribe artists. The miniatures in the, in the Shanikas Birka, for example, are unlike anything else from the time, offering as they do a visual genealogy of, of important burg lords and a clear interest in contemporary European art. Henri and Marsh Michele understood their design in the context of German woodcuts, as like them they are gaudy and violently realistic. Cunningham had noted stylistic associations with wall painting from Pickering in Yorkshire and stained glass from Long Melford in Suffolk. And I myself have likened them conceptually to portrait galleries designed to bestow grandeur and legitimacy, such as that found on the pages um, of the late medieval Guild Book of the Barber Surgeons of York. Um, and likewise, the frontispiece of Manus O'Donnell's Baham Killer has been noted by various scholars has been noted for the background of the miniature, Henri Henri and Marshmichaeli interpreting a foliate pergola, if you can imagine, with a beautiful tiled floral backdrop, um, two large red roses and a fleur-de-lis as as being offshoots, uh, as either an imitation of 15th century Franco-Flemish miniatures or embodying a memory of stained glass. Whereas Darren McEttagon and Francis J. Byrne, in contrast, identify the floral motif as Tudor roses, perhaps representative of the lavish ornaments decorating the ceremony in Westminster, or a gift of a golden rose to A. Dove O'Donnell from, um, Henry the, from Henry VIII when he was knighted. Um, and what is striking here is the number of visual references to both other media but also to abroad. And this is true of historiated initials as well as miniatures, as Puerco Macon has shown in his assessment of the initial design, here's hoping, uh, of the Copenhagen uh, Magi 3 genre, as he argues for woodcut inspiration and foreign influence over an eclectic scribe. But this is not to say that scribe artists of the period were either all or nothing in terms of design, as the Duner also incorporates typically Irish motifs, freely blending them with those of foreign origin. The use of figure illumination, which was relatively rare in the arsenal of the Insular-inspired scriptorium in the later Middle Ages. The incorporation of motifs and styles from print, sculpture and stained glass and the amalgamation of the traditional and the innovative surely cannot be described as slavish imitation. Indeed, the creativity demonstrated by scribe artists of the period led Henri and Marsh McHaley themselves to go on and state that by the end of the century, the illumination produced was perhaps more handsome than anything that had been made up until then in medieval Ireland. And this is no less true of the textual contents of 23 and 10, as over the past two days we have heard adjectives and phrases such as significant, meaningful, exclusive, perverse, peculiar, valuable testament, important witness, confident to interfere and, my favourite, very cool, uh, to describe the texts, none of which are particularly synonymous with the notion of pure imitation. Uniquely, as Richard Sharpe highlighted, um, Chantal's reconstruction earlier of the physical book has parallels with English manuscripts at the time of the introduction of paper to the industry there in the 15th century. So, moving on to the nitty-gritty uh, of the matter. What was the minimum cost to produce a manuscript in 16th century Ireland? Or perhaps a more appropriate question would ask, how much was a book worth? Um, and unfortunately, this is obviously a difficult question to answer with any sort of accuracy, uh, due in part to a lack of detailed records, but also to the nature of the scribal industry. And so in lieu of, re- of records detailing the overall cost incurred in producing particular manuscripts, uh, we need to look sort of more generally at references to books or materials which occur in sundry accounts and deeds. Looking firstly at parchment, um, it at the time was obviously not without its flaws, as we can tell obviously just from uh, page nine of the Book Valley Common, or I also have folio two rectum of uh, Bodleian Library, Royal B512, will show us, and so size and shape and number of defects were likely a significant factor in the price, Um, and the more vocal scribes regularly bemoaned the quality of their parchment and other equipment. My curse on my vellum cries one mid-16th century scribe. Um, another, my writing equipment is bad, a soft spiky pen, foxy thick ink, vellum stony and green, and grief, grumbles another. Indeed, a scribal note on page 55 of the book of also complains that the ink is bad. So for parchment, um, entries occur in various guild accounts. And we know, for example, that in 1559, William and the master of the Dublin Guild of Carpenters, Millers, Masons and Helliers, accounted 12 pence for parchment to a charter. The Merchant Tailor's Guild of St. John the Baptist in Dublin parted with 12 pence for a skin of parchment to write a copy of the inquiry. In 1574, uh, sorry, sorry, in 1574 and in 1577, the barber surgeons guild of St Mary Magdalene again in Dublin paid five shillings and four pence for parchment, eight skins of the largest sort, and sixteen pence for real skin on which to write a charter. This charter survives. It measures approximately sixty-one and a half centimeters in width and forty-nine and a half by height thus making the surface area of approximately 0.3 metres square, um, and therefore suggesting the use of very young and possibly aborted fetus skins in the process. Um, And A study conducted here um, in the Academy some 30 years ago now examined five Irish manuscripts dating from the 6th to the 16th centuries in an attempt to discover the species of animals used in the parchment-making process, their ages at death, and the numbers required to produce the manuscripts. And one of those considered was the Lara Rock, written by a single scribe before 1411, and today contains 140 leaves measuring 14.5 by 28 centimetres. Thus, the researchers concluded that at least 70 animals would have been required. A second manuscript, the Book of Hermoy, uh, dates to the 14th century, with additions obviously in the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, Today, this manuscript consists of 119 leaves, measuring 34 by 26, requiring approximately 60 animals. These estimates were based on the assumption that one or a maximum of two bifolia were formed from each skin, with the average uh, skin size from a young animal being about 0.5 to 0.7 meters squared. For today's 14 parchment folia in the back of Ballycommon, then, we would be looking at three or four animals. If the book had, in fact, existed in two versions, one parchment and one paper, as suggested by Mulcrone, however unlikely that now seems, um, the original manuscript would have required about 40 animals to support the current text. Now, while parchment skins would have, of course, been available locally, um, some sense of the cost can be gleaned from importation records. In 1594, a cork merchant, Edward Roach, brought six parchment skins from Bristol at a value of about 26 pence, taking into account the exchange rate. Um, The following year, Limerick merchant John Bodkin imported four dozen parchment skins to the value of 17 shillings and 9 pence. Henry Gold and Stephen Galway, both of cork, imported a dozen at the value of 4 shillings and 5 pence. Edward Roth of Kilkenny, two dozen at eight shillings and tenpence, and Robert Black and Patrick French of Galway, two dozen at seventeen shillings and ninepence. Now, with the exception of the final entry, which must suggest a a really, really fine quality, um, these figures provide a standard price of just over four pence per skin. The cost and parchment for the Book of Ballycommon must therefore have been something in the region of a shilling to a shilling and fourpence for the extant folia, or twelve shillings and fourpence for a full manuscript paper then in sixteenth century Ireland, while cheaper than the parchment alternative, was still expensive. There were early attempts at manufacturing paper in Kildare, but reliable paper mills did not appear until the late seventeenth century when Nicolas Dupin was granted the exclusive privilege of making white writing and printing paper in Ireland in december sixteen ninety as such. All paper was imported and therefore costly, and even at that not necessarily of good quality, as it was lamented in the 1580s that paper in Dublin is dear, scant, and bad. The, Prist- the Bristol port books and the customs accounts show that throughout the second half of the 16th century, Ireland was receiving frequent supplies of paper, brown paper, which was a cheaper variant used often used for wrapping, and painted paper. And for the period of 1563, 1564 onward, after the rates were uh, adjusted for inflation to more accurately reflect the actual cost to the end of the accounts for the 1570s, there were numerous shipments listing paper. The value was calculated by the ream, which according to the 1582 rates book was 20 choirs with 25 sheets to acquire, Um, and the rate per ream was standardised at three shillings and eight pence, and in the case of brown uh, Brown paper, uh, the value was listed at three shillings and Uh, Paper dimensions then in medieval and early modern Europe appear to have been relatively standardized with four sizes, chancery, median, royal and imperial. And let us assume that the sheets are of chancery dimensions, the smallest size, um, at 32 by 45 centimetres, and they could be easily folded twice to quarto format of approximately the size of the Book of Valley At this rate, the present quantity of 132 pages of paper would require 16.5 sheets, with 8 sheets of writing to a sheet, or 20 for a full text, at a value of just under or over uh, 1.5 pence. In addition to the writing surface itself, there are references to other materials required for book production. Penners, uh, which were uh, metal or leather cases for holding pens, and inkhorns were regularly imported into Ireland at a standard price of about 26 pence per dozen. In 1577, a book of gold to trim our charter cost the... Dublin Guild of Barber Surgeons, two shillings and sixpence, and a further three shillings was spent on white and gold lace, eighteen pence on hinges and clasps, uh, for same, and four shillings and sixpence on a box to keep our charter. And finally, the bindings of a book—excuse uh, me—finally the bindings of a book cost Saint Werburgh's uh, two shillings in 1590. Marginal notes in the lower rack allow the speed of transcription to approximately be calculated at one large double-columned page per day, or approximately six weeks' work to complete 35 pages. Calligrapher Tim O'Neill has used this calculation as a guide and finds it to be an accurate estimation of the time involved at an average of about 180 words per hour. As Kevin Murray told us uh, earlier, scribe-dependent, there can be about 400 or 500 words to a page according to O'Neill's estimate of words, it would have taken the scribe approximately two and a quarter to two and three quarter hours to complete transcription of one page. Even if we were to round that down to two to two and a quarter, given the Lara is sort of more lavish in design, has writing in double columns, at this rate, the 160 pages of the book would have required a minimum of 40 or 45 days of labor from a single scribe to produce 23 and 10. Now, This is not easy to reconcile with known costs, given the time required to complete the various tasks, but in 1559 a payment was made from the Dublin Guild of carpenters, millers, masons and helliers of six shillings to a clerk for translating the charter and bead roll, which is a list of benefactors, into English. And an earlier reference from St. Werberg's also counted six shillings and eight pence for the writing of a gradual and music for the mass for the church, to the church. Um, and the Guild of Barber Surgeons paid the rather tidy sum of 40 shillings for the writing of their charter and its seal. Of course, there's no accounting for the quality of the penmanship or the tools used in the different books, which Colophon's Edgerton 88 will tell us was variable. Uh, Donal, if I am right, this is a bad style of writing. And my goodness, Ducky, tis a pity but he had a pen from you in his hand. So, all in all, Production of a modestly sized book, like 23 and 10, without dressing or illumination, would have conservatively cost something in the region of five shillings for paper, 40 days of labour, assuming just three shillings of a fee, um, which I took as half of that which was charged to the clerk mentioned uh, a moment ago, and binding, before considering the making of ink or pens. If the book had been written entirely in parchment, it would have cost more than 17 shillings. This figure, um, the, the, at least for paper, um, is in line with the six shillings spent by St. Werberg's on a communion book in 1594, and a box then to hold a book could be added for, say, an additional three to four shillings, depending on size. To put this into perspective, in 1570, John Smoth, uh, Smoth uh, was leased a house and garden in St. Mickens Parish in Oxmantown for 40 shillings in annual rent, and 12 years later, Anne, daughter of Edward Smith, was, re- was similarly rented a house and garden in the parish for 20 shillings. Gillespie has written widely um, on the trade in printed books in and into Ireland from the end of the 16th century and through the 17th centuries, and has illustrated how cheaply books were available, at least at wholesale prices, though he states that the relationship between wholesale and retail prices is not clear. And if we look at just two entries from Bristol, both dating to 1570, Michael Bray of New Ross brought 18 books for children at 11 shillings and ninepence, and Edmund Roth of Cork brought a dozen primers at a value of about 26 pence. While obviously very different types of texts in terms of both uh, the theme and the language, both were available for significantly lower prices than the minimum cost of producing 23 and 10. Um, And given such eye-watering discrepancies in the costs, it is not at all surprising that the compiler would have elected uh, to produce such a practical and cost-effective structure as proposed by Chantal earlier. There are, of course, difficulties with these numbers. First, there's no accounting for tax or profit on the quoted prices on the importation of materials or prefabricated books and these poor records can be damaged or incomplete. Second, whether or not the books, for example, at St. Werberg's listed um, were illuminated, for example, is unknown. And third, there is no distinction made in the kind of scribes involved in the work. Whether the scribe was a member of the monastic community or the learned classes of poets and historians, possibly working on a subsistence or a benefiting kind basis, or a clerk or notary in the legal profession, presumably impacted on their fee. In the case of 23 and 10, the scribe owner was probably not going to pay himself the transcription fee, but presumably was required to compensate his colleagues in some form or other. And if we come back to Chantal again, um, care and consideration that went into the production um, in addition to the cost of of, um, materials and labour is really striking. And rather at odds, I think, uh, with Kathleen Mulcrone's rather peculiar comment uh, in the catalogue, that it was penned by A for his own amusement, um, since this was clearly an object designed with a purpose and not for leisure. Um, We have established that books were expensive to produce, but perhaps a better notion of their true value comes from their use beyond reading and their circumstances of the patronage and ownership. References to books throughout the period suggest that they were not only vehicles of information, but precious, valued objects concern for their housing and protection, um, as well as the veneration of books, is apparent in the commissioning and refurbishment of book shrines, such as that of St. Colina Fina, made in 1530 for Brian, son of Owen Rourke, and Margaret, daughter of O'Brien, and that of the 11th century Michick, recovered by Brian, son of Brian Amersa, in 1534. In fact, of the eight surviving book shrines from medieval Ireland, five underwent some later medieval alteration. We know that books were considered family heirlooms, passed down through generations of both Gaelic and Anglo-Irish families alike. Um, albeit in a 15th century book, A Colophone in the Bo- Yellow Book of Lacan even refers to the book in those terms. A prayer for McFurvish, who wrote this book as an heirloom for his family, that shall come down after him forever. And several 15th and 16th century wills, such as that of Thomas Butler, uh, 7th Earl of Ormond, bequeathed books to their children. Ormond left a mass book covered with russet velvet to his daughter Anne, along with a cloak embroidered in gold belonging to his wife. Likewise, Henry Berry has a wonderful description of the value of medical texts at the time when he says that books which contained the symptoms of disease with appropriate remedies and cures were treasured and handed down in the families of these old-time leeches. And such value was put in more economic terms when the Fitzgeralds of Kildare acquired a medical text at the beginning of the century in exchange for 20 head of cattle. We know that patrons were willing to house scribes in their own homes for considerable periods of time in exchange for a manuscript or provide generous compensation in the form of tax-free portions of land and horses with saddles, harnesses, suits of clothing, jewels, plate, etc. Ownership of the books of the White Earl, Paltelrath and Carrick by the Fitzgeralds of Desmond in the first half of the 16th century was due to their being given in exchange for ransom for their previous owner, Edmund Macroger Butler, in 1462. Likewise, a note probably inserted into the Lower Nahira in the early 16th century tells us that the manuscript was carried off by force from the Connachtman and the Lower Giar along with it by the O'Donnells. The Book of Ballymote also records the sale of a manuscript to A. Dove O'Donnell in 1522 for the sizable sum of 140 milk cows. Um, And even if this latter note is exaggerated three or fourfold, these records suggest that collectors were willing to go to considerable lengths to secure these objects. Also, the experience of the books of the White Earl and Wrath now bound together in Lord Miscellaneous 610, um, while in Desmond, hands, also attests to the care and rehabilitation of books by patrons during the period. And Colophon in the manuscript records that Siri Makshawn E. is restoring the books for Morris, son of Thomas, that is, for the Earl of Desmond. And later, on a heavily restored page, another remarks, I never liked the rewriting of these letters, and I don't like it now. Books were also performative objects, expecting the scribe to bring alive a moral, character, or history, and expecting the reader to engage in an active and meaningful way. The scribe of the life of St. Catherine in Mora Book of Piety concludes with, I myself drew it from the Latin, and a curse on all my implements, and everyone who shall read or listen to or memorize will gain heaven for himself and three others he likes most at Rolica. Indeed, The active experience of devotion and devotional reading is recorded in the patron's office, which states that she observed the 12 golden Fridays, demonstrating as Salvador Ryan points out that her religious material did not simply remain on the page. Books could seemingly also hold a mystical value as relics, as we mentioned earlier, and we see this, obviously, in the adoption of the name Cog for the Psalter for the of St. Columba, after the practice of carrying it into battle as a talisman to ensure victory, as described by Manus O'Donnell. Um, and books held a social value, acting as the site of oath-taking. In 1517, Mason Barnaby Feld was sworn on a book to observe and keep the statutes and laudable customs of the Carpenters' Guild. Each of these disparate references highlights the materiality of the book, and its importance as a prop or tool in diverse aspects of life, from private devotion to times of strife and combat, and legal affairs of a practical and mundane nature. Books were also employed as tools in the performance of power, display, and demonstration of lineage. We see this in the exacting of books by force, as mentioned already, and in numerous other examples. The Do- O'Donnells themselves, for example, were temporarily relieved of the cahuck by the McDermida. And the insertion of the visual, ge- the visual genealogy in the Shanachas Burke is another example of this performance. In a book dedicated to its glorious history of the Burke family, the miniatures firmly place the patron Sean McOlivar's Burke within that illustrious heritage. And and this is rather interesting, as this Irish manuscript also contains a lengthy declaration on his somewhat spurious family ties to Elizabeth I, illustrating a concern for multifaceted self-promotion. Book ownership, literacy and piety was worthy of display in 15th century tomb sculpture. Rachel Moss highlights the unusual depiction of a secular aristocratic woman holding an open book um, on the McGowanagh or Cray funerary monument in Ennis County Clare as a marker of status for its female patron, Maureen Averyan. And similarly, the inventory of Kilkenny Castle in 1630 tells us that the prayer books, the only books listed, were kept in the great chamber. Now, this does not give us any further insight into the circumstances, but presumably, if stored in the great chamber, they were done so for the sake of visibility. Um, and the idea of a shrine or a box to house books raised a moment ago leads us to another larger conceptual question. Um, yesterday, Elizabeth Boyle asked what constituted a poem in the 16th century in Ireland, and I am asking what constituted a book? The importation of horn books suggests that a book might have been as little as a single sheet, a horn book or book on a stick, as described by Eric Quackle, is a leaf of paper containing the alphabet, often with the ten digits, some elements of spelling, and simple prayers protected by a thin plate of transparent horn and mounted on a table of wood with a projecting handle. Their popularity was such that in 1592, they constituted almost half the total number of books imported from Bristol. And while hornbooks are perhaps an extreme case, there is evidence to suggest that short, discrete texts might be thought of as books. Um, a colophon in the book of placon or book of uh, Ballymon Connery, points to this possibility. Paul Walsh deciphered the cryptic fol- colophon to read, This is the book of placon." Namely, Pauline's place and Theebzack and Tombolcunia and its four stories Murachas, and Sean has Compert Conquer and Lara Irshe, and Lachlan has Forfus Verfalke, a four story of Tombolcunia, the book of the uh, the book of Ibra. Now, having slightly amended Walsh's transcription, Cunningham and Gillespie have no- interpreted the note as indicating that at least part of Pauline, the older scholar's texts, had been distributed for copying. And the authors, therefore, suggest that the book was not a single bound manuscript, but rather a collection that contained other books within it, and that could be readily separated into its component parts. And inventories of two libraries survive from the period. The Kildare Rental preserves two catalogues of the Library of Fitzgerald, the ninth Earl of Kildare, dating to the first half of the century. The books in the library are categorised according to language, first Latin books, French books, English books and Irish, and then by text. Um, and Ashling Byrne has argued that discrepancies in the ordering and the compilation of the two inventories suggest that certain texts, uh, such as Libera Alexandri Dertus and the Ordinale, were standalone, likely printed texts, which had been bound together but deemed independent. This was equally true of the Irish manuscript entries, The religious entries in the Irish section, for instance, comprise seven lives or passions of saints, a life of monks, a book belonging to a saint, a psalter, the nativity, and the book of the gospels. An entry such as St Catherine's life cannot have been much longer than a few folia, but its itemisation suggests that it was deemed a book in its own right, either standing alone or perhaps incorporated into a compendium. And similarly, the Franciscan friars in Yale also compiled compiled an inventory of their library at various points between 1490 and 1523. And their catalogue also suggests that in at least some cases, books could consist of individual texts. Item 72 is described as a certain booklet called according to the Mirror of Albert and the text of the Book of Job in one volume. Another item is described as one portion of a psalter beginning at Beatus to the, to the San Dixitinus in Isiostus, with the Glossa Ordinaria and Apostle on, um, on the Book of Job in one volume. This stress on the compilation of the texts into a single volume would suggest that the books themselves were understood to be independent as at Kildare. This is, however, rather difficult to say with any certainty, as the contents of another item, also listed as a booklet, are further described by the cataloguer as a large compendium of material, namely legal material, on the sentences of Peter Lombard, on Daniel, on the decretals, on the proverbs of Solomon. And in his annotated transcription of the inventory, Coleman O'Clavey has suggested that perhaps this refers to a commonplace book or a student's school book. Equally, though, there are listings where single books are written over the course of multiple volumes. The sermons of Leonard of Udine are in two volumes, as is the letter collection of St. Jerome. So, while it is difficult to form any strong conclusions on the exact correlation between the inventories and the physical spaces of the libraries themselves in Kildare or in Yule, these inventories have shown us that books and booklets were not ne- necessarily fixed concepts. Also, While we have mentioned book-binding, it would not appear that books were necessarily bound. The Book of Plucon must have been held loosely, or at least easily separated, if individual books could have been disseminated at the same time. Upon the discovery of the 15th century Book of Lismore in 1814, the folia were not stitched and bound, but rather kept together loosely. Unfortunately, this arrangement seems to have lent itself to pilfering, with R.A.S. McAllister quoting a record of Eugene O'Curry that it was alleged that several loose leaves and even whole staves were detached and were carried off by the workmen who found it, and that this sufficiently accounts for the total disappearance of some 40 folios from the beginning of the book. And in the last installment of this conference series, we heard of the disappearance of more than half the original folia of another 15th century manuscript, the Book of Ivania. And this enormous folio loss would also suggest housing as loose or only partially bound leaves in a box. And if this were the case, the book shrines or other forms of box could therefore offer very practical housing solutions in addition to acting as reliquaries and bestowing prestige on the objects held within. The 16th century manuscript was neither one thing nor the other. It was neither wholly traditional nor wholly forward-looking, neither wholly prestigious nor wholly utilitarian, neither exclusively parchment nor paper, neither exclusively insular nor foreign, neither lengthy and bound, nor short and loose. The 16th century manuscript was, however, expensive, both in monetary terms and, in cult- and culturally valuable. Regardless of the type or quality of the materials, regardless of how economical the scribes were with their writing, regardless of dressing, regardless of origin, regardless of end user, the 16th century manuscript was an expensive object. It was a repository of knowledge, it was a thing of pride and prestige, it was an heirloom, it was a charm, it was a place to grumble, it was a place to invoke a curse. The 16th century manuscript may well have been given way to print, but it was... Uh, still an object of considerable social and educational value, requiring a great deal of care and consideration to produce. Um, And so I will leave you now with this quote from the 19th century bibliophile William Blades on what he felt constituted justice for those who did not heed old wisdom and who did not take sufficient care of ancient lore.